From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis. Today, we are thrilled to have Jack McCulloch join us. Jack, thanks for being on the show. Oh, hey, thanks for inviting me. Sounds like a fun opportunity and love to connect with your audience. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So let me just start by just mentioning a few things about Jack. He comes to us from the Boston, Massachusetts area. Jack earned a bachelor's in accounting from Suffolk University and his MBA from MIT. He has held the CFO position at 26 companies. That's a lot, I might add. That's We're going to talk a little bit about that. And he's the founder of the CFO Leadership Council. Jack is also a sought-after speaker, a thought leader. He you know, works with CFOs around the globe, and he has his own bobblehead. Tell me about the bobblehead. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask. A lot of people ask if I made it myself. I, I thought of asking that. You know, Did you have that made so you could show off your head? Yes, that what kind of a pompous fool do you take me for? But yeah, so here's my bobblehead, which I later found out is on top of one of the Incredibles bodies. Uh, this was a gift from my prior employer, Pete Maurick Mitchell. I'm sorry, KPMG. And uh, my last day, they gave me a bobblehead doll with an Avengers with a um, superhero bottle, uh, the Incredibles. My, my knowledge of pop culture will continue to impress you. So yeah, so that's what I've told. I've uh, recognized so far, so I'll make sure I ask lots of pop culture questions. No, not really. You know, if it's before 1986, I can do pretty well. So I could get some before 86. I was I was 10 then, so I could get yeah, a few. There you go. So yeah, we, there's some overlap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got a few years in there to discuss. All right. Well, how about we start with just having you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, tell our audience how you ended up where you're at today and a little bit of your journey. Sure. I'm a, a lifetime New England resident. And after undergraduate, I started my career with what was Pete Maurick and Mitchell at the time. Young people will know it as KPMG, but it's the same firm. And I worked there three years, became a CPA, worked with a series of companies uh, in financial leadership type of roles, controllers, CFOs, VPs of finance. Along the way, I got my master's degree from MIT Sloan. And the motivation behind that was I wanted to be, you know, more than just a numbers person. I wanted to be more of a strategic thinker. And I just thought getting an MBA would sort of broaden my mind and expand my skill set a little bit. So as you mentioned, I ended up being um, working as a CFO or equivalent to 26 different companies. And along the way, I started an organization that at the time was called the CFO Roundtable. It's since been renamed the CFO Leadership Council. And I've been working here full-time for about six years, although the, the group itself, which started kind of as a hobby, is, is about 18 years old. So, Thanks for that background. Appreciate it. We'll get into a few of those things here in a minute. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about the books you've written. You've written two books. If I have it right, we got Secrets of a Rockstar CFO, which I believe is behind you there. And just to the right, you have The Psychopath CFO. It's the second one you've written. So there's That's something correct. I found fascinating in that one on the site. So I want to go there for a minute. I noticed on your site, it mentioned that 15% of America's CEOs are psychopaths. So I have two yes. questions to this. We'll start with the first one. How did you come up with that number? Like, where's the data that study or how did they decide that 15% of CEOs are psychopaths? And I will add, I've met a few. So I can, <laughs> I can say that. Well, you, you know, you, you do the math. If you've, um, you know, it, it means 85% of C CEOs are not, which sounds pretty good. But, you know, if you work for three CEOs, if you do the math, 50-50 that one of them's a psychopath, right? There was a book called um, Snakes and Suits. It was the first book that tried to look at psychopathy in the executive suite generally. It wasn't specific to CEOs. It was the entire C-suite. They put the number at somewhere around 2%, which years later might be a little bit low, but that's what they, they came with. And, you know, they, it was groundbreaking in its time. But what happens is the further you go up the C-suite, the higher the psychopathy rate is. And there have been all sorts of studies that suggest that it's somewhere between 12 and 18%. I just use 15% in case I'm asked to do mathematics in my head. I can do that pretty quickly. <laughs> that is very interesting. I would have never thought it's that high. And just, I, I want to give you just a little perspective on that. 
The male prison population in the United States is about 15% psychopaths. So if you're a warden and you work all day with prisoners, and then at the end of the day, you go to some award ceremony honoring local CEOs, you're probably interacting with a similar number of psychopaths at each event. So just one's in jail and one's not. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The really smart ones become CEOs. So, you know, if you're born poor and you're not really smart and you're a psychopath, life is going to be pretty hard for you for the most part. But, you know, if you're born middle class or or whatever, and you're born with some gifts and a lot of psychopathic CEOs have tremendous gifts, you know, you can carve out a very lucrative career path for yourself. Interesting. I'm going to have to read the book now. You've really uh, piqued my interest. I haven't had a chance. I, I learned about it earlier this week and it's now been added to my list. So speaking of the book, you talk, I think in the book, you talk a little bit about how you survive a company led by a, a psychopath. So maybe talk a little bit about that and just the book in general. People have come to me and, you know, believe that they're working for a psychopath. And, you know, I'm not a medical person, but what they described they're you know, they're probably right. The first question you ask yourself, you know, do you want to survive working in a psychopath for a psychopath? Because, you know, we do live in a time, even though the economy is uncertain, There are a lot of jobs out there. I understand, you know, you might be loyal. You don't want to leave your team. You might like your investors. Maybe the company is very lucrative. You're going to go public in a year, whatever it might be. But you really want to ask yourself, do you want to work for Psychopath? Because it can ruin your life. You know, you uh, I've known, you know, people there, you know, they end up legal action and they spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills. And they also end up, you know, they meeting with an analyst. So, you know, every Thursday at two o'clock, they've got a meeting with an analyst because of the the damage and the number that the psychopath did on him. So ask yourself, is it really worth it? And then I, I guess to your question, a lot of people say, yes, it is. The best thing you can do is the thing about psychopaths is in their mind, everything is about them. Everything is to serve them. So think about when you're communicating with them, frame everything in their selfish interests and explain to them why their behavior or what they're doing is not acceptable from their standpoint. They're not nice all the time, but they're not irrational either. And if you can make them understand, you know, uh, like, like one guy I worked with, he would fire really good engineers at random. He was sending a message, you know, God only knows what message the clown thought he was sending. But, you know, explain to him, you know, he probably gets a power trip and he enjoys doing it, but explain to him, This is wrong, and this is why. You fire three really good engineers, all the other good engineers are going to leave because they have a lot of opportunities. The company's not going to succeed. You're not going to get as rich as you would like to get from this opportunity. Perhaps not quite that black and white, but you get the point probably. So, you know, frame it in why it's in their best interest to do something. And you can often get, you know, a desirable and reasonable outcome. That makes sense to me of framing it that way. And when you mention, you know, they're often very self interested. I worked for a company where, like I said, I'm pretty sure we had a psychopath CEO. Fortunately, I wasn't at the level where I had to be in any meetings with them. I just heard all the horror stories. The one that comes to mind that, not horror story, but we were all volunteers. We couldn't be called employees. I'm like, no, no, you pay us a paycheck. I'm not your volunteer, whether you want to call me that in the company guidebook or not. Yeah, that's kind of a weird thing. Did you ever find out what the thinking was on that? I mean, that's kind of strange. I did not. I think he looked at it like it was basically a privilege to work for me. So you're a volunteer. You can leave whenever you want. Oh, okay. Uh, that reminds me, I mean, actually, I, I had a waiter. This was a few years ago now, but uh, you know, I was ordering the food and uh, he said, choice of vegetables. And I said, okay, what is, what's the choice? And he said, broccoli. <laughs> and I'm like, broccoli and what else? And he said, well, the choice is if you want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I was given a choice on the vegetable, right? And, and you were voluntarily working there. You weren't an indentured servant or something like that. So Exactly. We could quit at any time. So technically, I guess I'm a volunteer. I mean, you pay me a paycheck, so I could dispute that. But yeah, and, and there are, I could go on a long list of things like that. That You won't win that argument. You'll win the argument against a rational person, but not against the person who would take that to begin with. You're not going to persuade them. So. Exactly. So there's no, there's no use. And I like your first point. And I think that's one everybody should ask themselves. First question is, do you want to be working for one? And I would think, you know, unless the benefits, you know, like you said, that equity or something really outweighs the damage, 
I would think in most cases, the answer should be no. Yeah. Can I ask you a question though, Paul? Because I ask this when I present on it and it's interesting. I'd love to get your answer. Steve Jobs is widely thought to have been a psychopath. Would you work for him? You know, from what I've seen, I would have probably said no. The, the way of how I've heard he's treated people, I don't know that I'd want to work for him. Yeah, it's uh, and it's an individual question. I would for a year because I, I think of what I would learn working for the greatest business mind of our generation. I would for a year, like Elon Musk, who's not a psychopath, but he has problematic behaviors. I'd work for him too, given the opportunity, but only, you know, for my sanity, it would only be for a short period of time. And I'd tell my friends, pull me out if, if <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, if I suddenly lose 30 pounds or gain 30 pounds or something, yank me out because that, that learning is not worth it. But, you know, if you can keep a healthy mental attitude, what could you learn working at Elon Musk's right hand? Yeah, you could learn a ton. And, and that's a really good point. And any of us can do something for a while for the learning experience. But when you talk about losing the 30 pounds, I worked with a guy, he had left the company, but somebody saw him right about the time he was leading. It had been an extremely stressful year and a company that was, you know, a little bit of a toxic environment. A friend of his asked somebody else, does he have cancer? Because he had lost so much weight and he looked so ragged. It's like, I'm glad you're gone now. And he, yeah, he looks great now, but that's just kind of the example where you said the 30 pounds at some point, the health isn't worth whatever the opportunity is at the end of that rainbow. Health is everything. If you don't have that, all the money, all the status, whatever it might be, it's not going to make a difference. And mental mental health, it's getting the attention in the last few years that it deserves finally. No, I'm 100% with you. I still, one of my top five favorite podcasts, we did one on mental health and finance. And I'm very proud of that because I think it's something we need to talk about more openly because that's the only way we're going to remove the stigma and help the most people we can is to be open about it. So I'm, I'm 100% with you. I think it's great that it's much more open to talk about it today than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. And there shouldn't be any stigma. And as somebody once said, seeking professional help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. I'm 100% with you. I'm, a, I'm on the same page with you on that. So kind of moving forward here, I want to ask you a question about uh, the importance of developing a brand. You often talk about how CFOs should develop a brand. Why do you think it's so important in today's age that CFOs develop a brand? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the Football Leadership Council, I'll never be able to prove it, but we were almost certainly the first group to do developing a brand for chief financial officers. Because there was a time that, you know, you um, just do your job well. That was kind of the philosophy. And CFOs tend to be more humble. And I'm not saying that they're unconfident, but they're just humble about their accomplishments compared to, you know, VPs of marketing or VPs of sales and other C-suite executives, right? It's just, it's kind of the personality type that would follow that line. So it, it does take some encouragement to do it. And, you know, I remind people, you know, Paul, you have a brand. Do you want to own it or do you want somebody else to own it, right? Because I own my brand. You can completely ignore your brand. And luckily for you, yours is really good. You're, you know, you're well thought of. People think good guy, great interviews, bringing real value to the FP&A community, that's a great brand. But even if you never consciously set out to develop a brand like that, there it is. So, you know, good for you. So if you're CFO, you know, do you want the world to define your brand? You know, which CFO, you know, it might be, you know, nerdy accountant, quiet, and, you know, it may not even be true. So own your brand a little bit. And the brand needs to be consistent, but it also needs to have a certain amount of versatility because of the different needs of constituents you serve. You know, whether it be stockholders, uh, you know, having a brand on Wall Street is really good. Uh, having a brand with your own company's board of directors, uh, with your boss, with your employees, not only in FP&A and accounting and finance, but throughout the company. And, you know, there are certain consistent things about it, but just make sure that your brand is, you know, suitable for the audience that you're dealing with at any point in time, right? So it, it just makes so much sense to have a good brand and you don't want it to be a quiet accountant who's backward looking. You know, you you want the VP of sales and marketing engineering to think of you as a forward looking strategist. Agree. You don't want to be seen as the bean counter or the CF, no, right? You want to be seen as a strategic thinker. Hey, Paul, do you know that I probably invented the phrase CF, no? Did you? Tell me that story. I believe I did. It was my first accounting job. It was about 1984. I was working at a uh, hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Won't say which one because the guy's still around. It's not working. But anyway, the CFO, he just said no to everything, you know, can whether accounting position. I remember even like adopting it was Lotus before Excel. Can we do Lotus? Nope. Doing it by hand. Can we switch brands of coffee? Nope. 
no matter what it was, no, no, no. And I started calling him the CF no behind his back. <laughs> One day he called me into the office and he tells me, uh, I understand you've been calling me the CF no. And I'm like 19 years old, college student. I think I'm going to get fired. My parents are going to kill me. And then he says, I just want to let you know it's the finest compliment I've ever gotten in my career. Keep up the good work. You're going to go far. And I'm just thinking, what the heck is this guy talking about? And he, I later found out he thought I was spelling, using the word K-N-O-W, and that it was a tribute to his knowledge. It's When I found that, I was like, whoo, dodged a bullet there. You know, yeah, you I, got lucky on that one. Oh, boy. Yeah. As you might imagine, I wasn't in any hurry to correct him. That's hilarious. But I'm going to go back to where you mentioned, you know, like sales and marketing have a brand and, you know, they're kind of big out there. So Steve Young, last year I was at a CFO conference and he was the keynote speaker. The footballer? Yeah, the football, the Hall of Famer. And he mentioned, he referred to, you know, your wide receiver is your sales guy. They're the divas, the marketing, right? Your quarterback is the CEO. And he goes, your finance guys, you're the lineman. You're in the trenches doing the dirty work. You're not looking for all the glory, but often you're critical. If you don't have a good line, nobody else can be successful. And I really like that kind of analogy. And when you mentioned that, that's what it made me think of. Yeah, that's actually, I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but that actually does make a lot of sense. Sure, you know, the the quarterback and the wide receiver may get the glamour, but it doesn't work. You know, I'm, I'm from New England uh, and I had the privilege of watching what a lot of people consider the greatest quarterback who's ever done it. You know, Belichick notoriously, because everybody's wanting the shiny object, he often took offensive linemen in the first round. You know, knowing as good as Brady is, and, you know, he wasn't the most athletic guy, he ain't getting it done by himself. He needs, other than Randy Moss for a couple of years, he didn't really have elite receivers around him for the most part. He had good receivers, but he had an elite offensive line almost always and some pretty good tight ends over the years as well. So, Yeah, agreed. And, you know, tight ends are a mix of receiver and linebacker and linemen. I, I totally agree with you on that one. That's a good analogy there, too. Good point to make. So you know, going back to brand, what advice would you offer? What would you say about FP&A professionals and building a brand? Would you think of it the same way as a CFO? Do you think it's something everybody should do? Or is there a point in the career when you really need to think about it? They need to think about their brand because the best FP&A professionals, they're going to become VPs of FP&A and more and more, uh, they're going to be CFOs. Now is probably the time to start thinking of the brand because it's still a little bit unconventional for an FP&A person to become a CFO. Although a few years ago, I predicted that it would actually pass controllership for the most common path to being a CFO. It hasn't yet, but I still think I'm right. It's just taking longer than I thought. But, you know, so start thinking about the brand. And again, not unlike CFOs and controllers, the brand isn't just that you're really good with numbers. It's that you're thoughtful, you're insightful, you can tell a story with the numbers that's going to empower really good decision making. And then, you know, the big part of it within all of finance and accounting is the integrity, uh, you know, and the transparency and communications and that type of thing. So, you know, I would encourage even at a young age, start thinking about your brand. And I'm 100% with you. I wish I had started thinking about my brand earlier. I will say I've had more opportunities, more things open to me, jobs, off offers, business since I started posting on LinkedIn and built a brand. I wouldn't have started my business without it. I'm a big believer like you that you're never too early to think about the brand and how you want to be known. doesn't mean you need to get a big, huge following or be a social media star, but you need to think about what you represent and what's your way to demonstrate that. Absolutely. And, you know, your thing on social media and, you know, I, I have over 30,000 uh, followers, which, you know, pretty good. But like I get inquiries from recruiters and people looking to hire someone with my background all the time. And I'm not even that smart. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's just because I have a, a presence and, you know, somewhat of a, a likable personality and I'm prolific on social media. And, you know, and that's kind of my brand, a likable guy who's smart enough that can get a lot of stuff done and get people to follow him. So it's all you need. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I made a decent career out of uh, out of that. So good. That's that's what we all want to have a career we enjoy. Going back to how you predicted a few years ago that FP&A would surpass controllership as the CFO, what was your reasoning behind that prediction? What made you think that was the trend we're heading toward? Because I tend to agree with you. I do think we're seeing more of it. And over time, that will be the dominant area we see people come out of. Yeah. And, you know, each company's different. So I don't want to paint a brush too broadly. A lot of controllers, they focus on accounting, compliance, cost control procedures invaluable, not strategic. Um, you know, a lot of controllers, again, oversimplification and forgive me, their reporting 
history and, re, you know, reporting what happened. FP&A is, a, to me, it's a more strategic role. And, you know, it's not about compliance and things like that. It's about the future and building a company and making effective decisions and looking at the possibilities and, and you know, doing risk management. And with the role, the way the CFO role has changed and has continued to change to going from sort of back office reporting to being future-oriented, strategic, CEOs identify the CFO as their most important partner amongst the C-suite. What does that tell you, right? I just think for the modern CFO, FP&A is a better training ground to get those skills. Now, I, you know, still the majority of CFOs did come up through, you know, maybe public accounting, accounting manager control or CFO or, or something like that. But, you know, chip, 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 more and more FP&A people are getting the opportunity and they're, you know, knocking the cover off the ball when they do. So once more and more of them get success and people recognize the value they can bring in the top spot, not just an advisor, but a doer, they're going to continue to get more. I said it would be 2023. It's maybe 2026. Yeah, I, I think it's coming. We're definitely seeing a continued increase. I know a lot of new CFOs and most of them I know have come through FP&A, not through controllership. And they have great strategic thinking. You know, many have done corp dev, maybe investment banking, and then moved over to FP&A. I've seen a lot of that. Where they, you know, they didn't earn an accounting degree. They never spent time in controllership. Do they understand accounting? Of course. But they're first and foremost a business partner and a strategic thinker versus a process person. And not to say that all controllers are process. There are strategic ones out there and very good ones. But just it's a different role. Yeah. I know many controllers who are terrific strategic thinkers. They're going to flourish in an fp role. But they used to be, you know, you talk to a CFO who's my age. And I'm 104. But, you know, chances are they came up similarly to me. You know, you, you talk to a 42-year-old CFO. They came from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, I, I, former lawyers. Uh, I, I know some engineers who became CFOs, and they're actually really good at it. They bring an analytical skill that very few financial people have. FP&A, you know, there's just a lot of ways to get to the role. Agreed. And I thought it was interesting when you mentioned engineer, because... Some of the best FP&A people I've worked with, many of the best, have had an engineering background. Those their analytical skills are typically second to none. Oh yeah, they're fan, you know there's there's not many who would to become CFOs. And, you know, bluntly, it, it, that's a choice, right? I mean, they, they most of them wouldn't find it fulfilling, uh, you know, compared to what they're doing. And mo most CFOs may not find engineering fulfilling too. But you know, the the ones who do and develop a passion for it, they can do really well. You know, and it, it, I went to Sloan and, you know, a lot of people who go to Sloan, they start off in engineers, get the MBA, work at a consulting firm. So they've got, you know, the combination of the, the scientific analytical mind, the financial skills. Those people are perfect for CFO should they pursue it. I would agree with you. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, next question here as a CFO, you've done this a few times, I've heard, rumor has it. What is the most important thing you look for in your FP&A team and your FP&A department? What do you expect from them? It's not just the numbers. At the risk of saying stupid, I actually want them to have an opinion, right? Don't just tell me that gross margin went from 26.2% to, you know, 23.1%, except, however, in Latin America, it actually went up to 28.4%. Don't make me ask. What happened in Latin America that we might be able to use to repeat in North America and Europe and Asia? You know, why did the company in total go down? You know, what could we have done to prevent it? What can we do now to get us back on track? What, you know, what can Asia do to be more like Latin America? Uh, were Latin American numbers just a freak? You know, if, if you're just presenting numbers, there's a role for it. But, you know, as you get up the chain, you, you really need to understand the numbers and understand how they impact the business, what they really mean. Okay, what does it mean that this margin fell or, you know, whatever it might, whatever the KPI that you're talking about. Okay, revenue per employee fell. Okay, is that seasonal? It's, is it because it's summer in Europe and they shut down? That might be information I'd want to know, you know, whatever it might be, right? So have some thoughts, some insight and an opinion on the data you're presenting. Just don't, don't just present data. I've uh, emphasized that a lot. I said one of the most important things when you're providing that variance commentary is not what happened. It's first, why did it happen? And what can we do? There are the things we can do to correct it. You know, simple framework I like is what, so what, now what? And, you know, one of the best compliments I ever got in my career, because I've really always tried to focus on that. Differing levels of success, but I had a general manager that commented one time, you don't just report the P&L, you help shape the P&L. 
which is like you're impacting the bottom line in a positive manner. And that's what FP&A should be doing. If you're thinking strategically, you understand the business and you're not just spending all day in a spreadsheet. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tell people talking about CFOs, I said, you know, throughout the history of CFOs, they reported history. Today, they make history. They make it happen within their company. Can't do it without good FP&A resources. You know, it's uh, it, first lieutenant, FP&A person. Uh, you know, a, every great CFO I know has a great controller and a great FP&A person. May not be the titles, but, you know, the controller to make the ships run on time, the FP&A to help provide meaningful insights so they can make the future happen. 100% agree with you. I've seen that at good companies. You need both. And then when you have really good ones, a CFO can look really good. When you have bad ones, it's really hard. Even if you're a great CFO, you got to make some changes. Indeed. Yeah. Which, you know, CFOs usually are nice. They don't like those conversations, but sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. I'm sure there are some people that enjoy those conversations, but most of us don't. Yeah. Your former psychopathic boss would enjoy those conversations. I knew you were going <laughs> to. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, I was thinking that in my mind as I said, it. I'm going, I can think of 15% that would enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, statistically, the percentage of CFOs or psychopaths is 0.000. And I know that because those are my customers and I would never say otherwise. <laughs> See, they're not my customers. So I'm going to go with 12%. I won't say what it is for FP&A, though. Oh, 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 I'm putting <laughs> up a disclaimer on my screen, okay? So. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. All right. So, you know, this is a question we like to ask people. Can you tell me about a time in your career when you experienced a strategic moment? So, you know, like a strategic insight that later empowered you to drive change within the organization. Yeah, and, um, you know, the expression, some men are meant for greatness and some men have greatness thrust upon them. I was the latter. But it was actually COVID, you know, it just, it forced us to rethink everything because we were at that point in time, we were just a live events business. You know, we had, I forget exactly, but let's say I had 25 chapters and we had 200 live events per year. And then we also had a member platform, which was a, a Google group, but in the occasional, that was about it. We, we made our money from that. We had an annual conference that brought three or 400 CFOs in all of a sudden everything that we did to make money was illegal. And even if it wasn't, even if for some you found some loophole, you're able to hold your conference, no one's going to come to it. Yeah, exactly. It could have been legal, but nobody's coming. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we had to rethink everything. You know, we mastered, like a lot of people in my space, you know, embraced the virtual opportunities with the conference. We set up uh, what we're calling mastermind groups, where like-minded CFOs or whatever get together to discuss issues over Zoom, uh, whatnot, to, you know, that affect their business. We made ourselves so valuable to our members that they couldn't afford to not remain members. They were getting so much value even without going to the meetings. They couldn't afford to leave it. You know, I, I can't live without these insights. I can't live without the opportunity to interact with 200 of my peers. And, you know, I'm in, it's the business model. If the CFO is remaining and engaged and happy, the sponsors are going to as well. No, that's a great point. And I love how you said you were giving them so much value, they couldn't leave. And that's when you know you have something that you can just keep scaling and building. When you're not losing any customers, there's no churn and they're happy to pay the price, even when you're charging a premium. Yeah. And it's crazy. Like you might be boring to you, but you know, some of the KPIs in my industry, you know, is uh, member retention. And, you know, 80% is considered really good in my line of work. If you can keep 80% of your members every year, you're actually doing pretty well. And we were never at 80%. We were always like, we we're pretty close. I, I think the closest might've been 76. We're over 90 now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, most of our members aren't even going to the live meetings, which is what, how we defined ourselves. So membership's never been higher, never more engaged, satisfaction's unprecedented. And it's all because... I wouldn't have done that voluntarily, but I was forced to adapt and have a really smart team. And, you know, the, the members cared about this organization and wanted to make sure we succeeded. So, so we have. Sometimes those uh, moments of total change and chaos are when the greatest things come, like COVID. There are a number of companies that it launched where they're at today. There's others it destroyed. But those big events, if you play them right, they can often lead to huge opportunity. So one thing I want to ask you about, you know, you've talked about how you love the role of being a mentor. It's one of the things that's most dear to your heart and your favorite part of what you do. So two-part question for you here. The first part is, 
what is it that you love so much about mentoring others? What is it that keeps you doing that and that you enjoy about it? I really like it. I mean, knowing that you're helping a young professional along their career path. And, you know, I was fortunate along my career because I got my first CFO job just at the start of the dot-com era. And it's very possible that we're at the start of something similar with AI. Uh, you know, we'll see, but it, it feels a lot like it. But all of a sudden, there was just a demand for a ton of really good CFOs. And, you know, I might, absent that, I might have had to wait, you know, three to five years, pay my penance before getting it. But there was a need. And that's true for a lot of people my age. We got it, you know, maybe earlier than we were ready for. But, you know, we did a really good job with it. And so, you know, I, I feel very fortunate. And because of that, I think it's incumbent upon me to share it with the next generation of CFOs. I can't control whether or not they have equal or better opportunities in the overall economy. But what I can do is help them prepare for the opportunity when it comes and help them become better at their job. Uh, and the other thing, I actually have a reverse mentorship relationship, a Gen Z. And, you know, I, I recommend people do that, particularly boomers or almost boomers, you know, for a few reasons. One, you know, they're going to be your employees. They're going to be your customers. And, you know, maybe not at my age, but, you know, at some point, if you're in your 40s or 50s, there's a really good chance at some point in your career, you're the Gen Z 22-year-old right now, someone like that person is going to be your boss. So you really ought to take the time to, you know, get to understand that generation a little bit. And there, it's a good generation. I'm very impressed with it. I know most, most people hate, you know, the generations that follow them and stuff like that, but Gen Z, I've made it a point to get to know them. They're very impressive. You know, and you think they're the most technologically savvy, obviously, but it's a generation, you know, they've, um, they've really never known peace and prosperity the way I did. A lot of them were born right around September 11th. So America has been at war most of their lives. They were, you know, some of them were graduating high school or college during COVID. There was just incredible disruption. Uh, you know, saw their older brothers, sisters, cousins, neighbors go through and they were denied some of those things for a year or two. And it's really shaped them. And, you know, they're going to be well positioned to run the world when their turn comes and their turn is going to come pretty soon. I am 100 percent with you. I know a lot of people like to bash them, but I had three people who had done internships, you know, a couple multiple on the show it was a Gen Z episode. And I was so impressed with the three of them. I commented, we're in good hands. They were very smart. But what I really liked is they had a passion for more than just work. They wanted a purpose to what they were doing. They didn't want to deal with bad data. You know, they want things to run smooth. And you could tell they cared, but they cared a lot, a lot more than work. And I'm fine with that. Like, I know some generations, it was 60, 70 hours of work was the norm. And hey, if that's what you want to do, great. But if your focus is, hey, I come put in my 40, 50 hours, I work hard, I do a good job, but I want my life. I'm totally supportive of that. And there's no reason we shouldn't be. There's so many productivity tools that didn't exist for us, but did, do exist for them. And they spent a lifetime, short lifetime, uh, but, you know, mastering these things. If it gives them a shorter work week, God love them. The only complaint I have about Gen Z, and it's not really about the generation, but their, their music stinks. It, it, <laughs> it, you, it, you can't listen to it. It's horrible. So, All right. So what's your favorite band? I got to ask since you brought up music. Well, I'm not going to say, you asked me my favorite band, which is ACDC. Uh, I'm not saying they're the greatest band. I mean, you know, the, the Beatles are probably the greatest band, certainly of my lifetime, if not ever. It's going to be tough to, to compete with them. But I'm, uh, I'm a headbanger, uh, as I know you know. But when I take the stage at conferences, I, uh, I have two uh, entrance songs. The first day of the conference, I come to Enter Sandman by Metallica. And then day two, I come to Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. And then at lunches, uh, at lunch breaks, I play Thunderstruck by ACDC. So you need to come to one of your conferences. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think every financial conference should start with heavy metal music. So, but it does, <laughs> even people who don't like it, you know, you hear Thunderstruck, you know the song, right? Thunder. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, even if you don't know the song and don't particularly like that type of music, it's tough to not get caught up in it. So, yeah, I'm a little more classic rock than the heavy metal, but I definitely have heard all the songs and can appreciate them. And I could totally see where that'd be fun. What are you into? Do you have a favorite band, Paul? Ooh, do I have a favorite band? I don't know if I'd say I have a favorite band. It's pretty eclectic. One of my favorite has always been The Police. I'm a big fan of The Police. Okay. I like Sting. And so that's one that's up there. You know, I like Bon Jovi. 
Aerosmith, but I, then I also like listening to some country and classical. So I have a wide kind of eclectic mix when it comes to music. Yeah, I was eclectic, but then just somewhere along the line, probably the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I just kind of stopped paying attention. And my nieces and nephews always tease me just the, the things that they think I should know that I don't. You know, I know, um, trying to think of a current artist, Beyonce. She's current, right? There you go. Yeah, she did the Super Bowl. Yeah, I couldn't name a song she does, but I, I know she's a real person and she sings and she's got, she's quite talented. So there you go. Yeah, no, my daughter likes a lot of 80s, kind of the soft rock and pop stuff, which is fun because she likes a lot of the same music I do. And so I'm like, ah, I can play the station I want and she'll listen. Yeah, I will <laughs> say my nephews and nieces, they know my music better than I know theirs. Like they, they know the Beatles, they know Led Zeppelin. They don't necessarily like it, but they know it. You know, I only recently found out Taylor Swift's a woman. I went through the last few years thinking Taylor Swift was a man. I don't know who I thought Taylor Swift was. I might have been confusing her with, you know, Justin Bieber or something. I don't really know, but <laughs> she appeared in con conference recently, and I told my my niece I didn't know who he was, and she thought I was pulling her leg, and I wasn't, so... There you go. Well, hey, you know, focus on what you like and the things you want to do. Pop culture is always going to be there, whether you want to deal with it or not. Kind of coming back to the mentor, what advice would you offer to our audience about finding a mentor? Yeah, you know, make sure it's a person who's genuinely interested in you and your career path. They're not doing it just to check the box at work or put it on their resume or something like that. They actually want to help you succeed and they can understand you. And then the other is, and this is good advice in life generally, but think a little bit outside the box. And when I, um, in the book, Secrets of Rockstar CFOs, I interviewed a uh, very successful CFO. And she told me when she was a controller, she sought out a mentor. She was a multi-billion dollar products company, consumer products company, excuse me. And she had, her mentor was a VP of sales. What made you think of that? And she said, you know, she wanted to become a divisional CFO and then maybe in time, the company CFO. She said, to be honest, I knew the debits and credits and the finance as well as the CFOs did. She felt that what would make her help her get the job earlier and then flourish once she got the opportunity was to understand the customer and the buying process and the sales process and understand the entire business, not just the finance and accounting. That set her up. In fact, uh, this was true a few years ago, but she was with a different company. She was the CFO and that VP of sales was the VP of sales of the same company. So now they were more peers and they had a, a multi-year relationship that was very productive. And she told me like um, they wanted to make sure that they respected each other's groups, you know, none of those finance versus sales and marketing wars. And um, so she said once a month, he would actually run the finance and accounting meetings and she wasn't allowed to attend. That same week, she would run sales and marketing and he wasn't allowed to attend. It's just a way to think outside the box and become a better all-around business person. I do like the thinking out of the box. When you just mentioned sales and marketing, I know like starting my own business, I've learned so much. Uh, a couple of years ago, I decided to read a book on sales, spin selling. Great book. And it's a classic. It was recommended to me by head of sales. I asked him what's, you know, the book you'd recommend. And that's the one he recommended. Yeah. We've come a long way because that, that same guy, the CF no guy, I remember, you know, he when I worked for him, he used to call marketing arts and crafts. <laughs> You know, particularly when you're 19 is hysterical, and I'm, I'm still chuckling about it now all these years later. And I mean, they call us bean counters, which you could argue is worse, but that's not really very productive. You know, it is, it's, and he wasn't saying it to be funny. That's how we viewed marketing. No, no strategic value. They're just the arts and crafts department. They don't do anything legit. And, you know, I, it's, it's just like you, I've seen great marketing people really take a company to the next level. No doubt. Marketing works. I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming that marketing works and good marketing can make a huge difference in a company. You want science. It's a lot more than just the arts and crafts, as you said. I always tease the marketing students in my MBA program, and I've really come to appreciate them since, but we'd always say, you know, all the marketing people are the ones who just can't handle the math, <laughs> right? You know, similar <laughs> idea. Well, you know, there are stereotypes. Occasionally, some stereotypes end up being true. Sure. And there, there's some truth to some of them, but you know, just kind of would always, and particularly because one of my friends, we've been good friends now, we've worked together at a company. When he was in grad school, he came to me for statistics tutoring and he went into marketing. So I always kind of tease him about that. It's like, but yeah, you went into marketing because you couldn't handle the math. You know, the best marketing people do have an analytical mind. 
And, you know, I have trouble convincing people of this. I don't think I'll have trouble convincing you of this, but the best finance people are creative. And, you know, there was a day you'd tell people, I want a CFO or a controller who's creative. I just mean, I want them to be able to solve a problem and that analysis things. But, you know, people would say, geez, a creative accountant, that sounds like a crook. Why, why does being creative make you unethical if you're a finance person? Why, why do you even go there? But I will tell you, a lot of people did back in the day and perhaps still do. I don't know. So I eventually gave up having those conversations. One of my favorite jokes, I say jokingly and gets me in trouble. I'm like, what's the difference between an accountant and an FP&A professional? When an accountant gets creative, they go to jail. When an FP&A professional gets creative, they get promoted. <laughs> that is uh, probably more true than uh, than we would hope. So. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of the one I joke about when people are explaining it on LinkedIn. I always add that as my kind of contribution. And some people like it. Some I can tell sometimes are like, hey, that's not really fair. Got to have a little fun in life. All right. We have the section we like to call rapid fire questions. I have just a couple here for you. You get about 30 seconds for each question and we'll just go through them here quickly. So first one, what is something interesting about you? Not many people know. I would normally say headbanger, but we covered that earlier. Okay, I was adopted as a baby, and my biological parents got married, but not to each other. And the result of that is I have two brothers named Jack. <laughs> All right, there you go. I like it. A, a bit of a fun fact, but yeah, you, do you remember the Newhart show? Mm -hmm. I'm Larry, this is my brother, Daryl, this is my other brother, Daryl. <laughs> I, I feel kind of like that. Yeah, I have two brothers with the same name as me, which they're not related to each other. One's my father's son, the other's my mother's son, but it, it freaks out my siblings who now have you know, two of us in their life. So I've gotten to know my family as an adult. That is definitely unique. Appreciate you sharing that one. Sure. So the next one is, if you could meet one person in the world, dead or alive, who would you meet and why? Can I pick my mom? Of course. Yeah, I, I, it would be her. I just, she was a, a wonderful mother, a wonderful woman. She died uh, about 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years this November, actually. And you know, I'm grateful for the years I had with her, but I miss her every single day. And I love to chat with her. Uh, at some point. I could totally see why you'd pick that one. It'd be wonderful to be able to chat with the woman that had a huge impact on your life again. And it was a very close friend. I could totally see why you'd pick that one. Next one. What is the worst manual process you've ever experienced? In anything, huh? It can be in anything. It can be work-related. It could be non, but just over your, you know, over your life, career, what's kind of the worst you've seen? I was a pencil-armed uh, high school graduate the summer after with nine inch biceps. And my dad wanted me to not have any good ideas of, of um, he wanted me to go to college. And so I ended up working for him just so he could make me miserable. And I, I didn't understand that was his master plan at the time because he was actually paying pretty good money. I operated a jackhammer. I don't know if you've ever done that. I have operated a jackhammer, yes. I've broke up some cement. Oh, geez, you're the first person. So you do that and you know, you're. I was a small guy, yeah, oh. I felt it for days afterwards, you know, it's, um, it just screws up your body. It was miserable. And I'm not even sure what exactly I was doing. I was breaking stuff. <laughs> so that was the worst manual process I ever had to deal with. So, yeah, I only had to deal with that a little, but I could see that doing that all summer. My experience is nothing like that. It might've been, you know, 20 minutes somewhere. I mostly was, a, I've done sledgehammer, cement, a yeah. little bit of a jackhammer, but not much. If you're thinking more along the lines of business, early in my career, I was very frustrated because, you know, getting a purchase order approved and then the invoice paid, I counted it. It was like 26 different touch points along the way, you know, from initiating the PO all the way, everything to approve the PO, place the order, and then get the check cut. We actually counted. It's like, you know, the CEO is touching this thing four times. Yeah, different world. You know, you, you have 25-year-olds listening to this and they think I'm making it up. Uh, yeah, I could see where 25-year-olds would believe you're making it up to. Here's an interesting one for you. What is the last thing the last thing you researched on the internet about something to do with finance? Hmm, um, something to do with finance. Sort of. I actually looked up who are the people on social media with CFO expertise whom I should follow. And I looked that up and... I was actually delighted. I myself made the list, which I wasn't thinking, which was kind of funny because I was like third on the list and fourth was McKinsey, like not a person from McKinsey, but the entire firm. <laughs> uh, I'm like, on what planet am I ranked ahead of McKinsey for, you know, thought leadership, right? Um, I can see that going on your website. If you need a global thought leader ranked higher than McKinsey, come to Jack. That's, yeah, that's absolutely. what you put out there. 
but you know, I'm often um, you know trying to make sure it's 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 a lot of data analysis type of stuff. You know, it's like I'll share like a budget, and you know, like I mentioned the KPIs about member turnover and stuff like that. And the report's a little bit complex because it's I have 30 chapters, and you know, there are a lot of variables. And I'll just share the data and say, what can it? You know, I literally it's it's funny. It talks back almost like it's a human. And I said, you know, what insight can you share that I may not be able to see for yourself? You know, it responds back in a very casual, friendly way. And it said, you know, these uh, perhaps you figured this out on your own, but these are three things that are a little bit beneath the surface. Some pretty cool insight, actually. And and it was right. I didn't um, notice it on my own. It's amazing what we can do today with technology. It's we're watching a revolution before our eyes. Like you mentioned, remind you of the dot com era. It'll be interesting to see if it ends the same way. A lot of people with the vision and the boldness and the guts are going to get very rich. Others won't, you know, there's going to be bad bets made because there always are, but uh, it's a, you know, it might be a once in a lifetime opportunity for people. I agree. There, There's going to be the next set of billionaires coming out of the next couple of years for sure. So you had mentioned you're not a big Excel user, so you get to get a pass on that question. So we're going to move on kind of the wrap up section. I just have two or three more questions here and we'll be done. What do you see as the most critical skills for CFOs today? It might surprise you, empathy and communications, it's a communications job now. You know, you give me somebody who is empathetic, a good listener, a good communicator, and has only pretty good accounting, financial, analytical skills versus somebody who's great on the financial and analytical side and, you know, isn't very good at communicating and isn't empathetic. I'm going to take the former seven days a week and twice on Sunday, as my parents used to say. So, you know, I think those are the big skills. Storytelling is another way to put it. You know, again, you're not just presenting data and numbers. You're telling the story behind the numbers in a way that's meaningful, both to financial people and to non-financial people. You ever read uh, Warren Buffett's annual letter? Yes, I've read some of them. He's no better a writer than you and I, but it's brilliant. You know, it's so, you know, he's candid. He's thoughtful. He tells the truth. He keeps it simple. You know, you your grandmother who invests in Berkshire Hathaway and just wants to get, you know, the warm fuzzies that the money's going well, she's going to read that, feel good about it. The most analytical analyst on Wall Street is going to read it and get, you know, have the same reaction. He's the best. There's a reason he's Warren Buffett and we're not, but he's definitely someone you can emulate. So if you're playing basketball, watch Michael Jordan, tennis, Serena Williams, financial communications, Buffett's your man. Yeah. His, uh, the things, the way he says things and able to tell a story, he's fabulous. Him and Charlie Munger, when they're at the event together, just play off each other so well. You can see he knows how to speak to audiences. He knows how to make them laugh, tell a story. And so important, you know, this last week we were, uh, me and my partner were in uh, Nashville at a Fortune 100 company's headquarters talking about storytelling and business partnering and the importance of it. It was really good to see these people really starting to understand how important that is beyond just the analytical skills to their career. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the name of the game because, you know, there's technologies and highly skilled, highly trained people that can help you with the analytical stuff. If you can't communicate that story, guess what? There's a lot of people that are willing to give it a try. Yes. One of the uh, lessons I learned the most in my career is I had a disaster where I did a really bad job of telling the story. And I asked my boss, I'm like, what went wrong here? And he looked at me, he goes, your analysis was brilliant. Your presentation lacked. Yeah. And you need both, right? You, you can't be all pizzazz and style, but you can't be boring either. Yeah. And so that really hit home for me. I really learned a lot from that. And it was just a reminder of the importance of that presentation, the storytelling. And that's truthfully part of the reason I come to stage to welcome to the jungle. I get up, I've got their attention instantly. If I just walked up on stage and introduced myself, Maybe, maybe not, right? But welcome to the jungle. All of a sudden, I've got a giant stage presence. Every single person is looking at me. Uh, you know, I can let my personality shine because it gives me confidence all of a sudden. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Everybody's kind of heart rates up. They're excited. You've got their attention. And then you just need to deliver versus I come up there and I have to grab everybody's attention. You've grabbed it with what you've done before you start speaking. Absolutely. Great one. I have to now think of what my song's going to be. Maybe I'll have to write about that. All right. So just two questions left. First one is, if someone in our audience is listening who wants to become a CFO, what's the advice you're going to give them? There's a lot, but if, if I can only give one, it would be um, understand the business beyond just the numbers too. And did you, did you see the movie The Intern? I know what movie you're talking about, but I haven't seen it. 
Okay, quick overview. She was an entrepreneur. She started and remained the president of her own company, which sold clothing online. And the opening scene in the movie where you didn't know who was who, Anne Hathaway was the actor, but she was actually on, she started out her first scene, she was on customer support. And they had shipped wedding, uh, like bridesmaids dresses or something that was sent to the wrong address. And she was talking to the customers and, you know, how is the delivery other than it was a couple of hours late? You know, is it good? What was your experience? Why did you buy it? Blah, blah, blah. It turned out she was the CEO of the company. But Anne got that by shadowing a real world executive who is thought to be the CEO of Spanx, but, you know, she never confirmed. She's, she shadowed a number of them. But, you know, the point is you're going to be a lot better at your job the more you know about the business. And, you know, if you live in the type of business where you can spend a few hours a week on customer support, going on sales calls, talking to the people who actually buy and use your products, you'll be much more effective in your role. It's hard to do. You know, CFO is a lot of hours a week, but a lot of them that I know, they go on sales calls. And by the way, they're pretty good at it, too. That would be my main one. Get a broader skill set than finance and accounting. Appreciate that. I, I agree with you there. I think that's a great one to have. So last question, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Um, the easiest way is to text me. Uh, my text, my phone number is 617-678-0957. You can f- follow me on LinkedIn, but LinkedIn actually recently, they have a limit of 30,000 connections. I'm always at that when I get, you know, I'm, I'm in a member organization, so I have to connect with my members if they ask, right? I mean, I, I want to, but even if I did not have to. So, you know, I'm a little selective on connecting, but, you know, we can follow. I follow everybody that follows me. The only difference is you can't see our non-shared connections. That's the only difference I've ever figured out. So, and it's Jack McCullough CFO on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter, but it's useless. I haven't posted really since Breaking Bad went off the year. Well, if it comes back on, I'll expect to post. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jack. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and hope you have a great weekend and can't wait to share this episode with our audience. Yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate your time and uh, it was a lot of fun. Let's do it again, Paul. Sounds good. Thanks, Jack.